Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Deal with 
All right, beautiful people. I want to thank you for joining me here. Nube Brown, host of Prison Focus Radio here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. All right, well, this is our first week of Black History Month, so that is where we are going to stay. We are going to be hearing you know, some history, some prisoner letters, some commentary, uh, but it is all going to be focused on uh, the 13th Amendment, the Exception Clause, the history of California prisons mostly, but also just um, prisons in general, and uh, and how we have gotten to this new iteration of modern-day slavery that is taking place within our prisons. So stay with us this month. Um, hope it will be enlightening, and uh, yeah, here we go. All right, we are first going to hear from a Dr. Dennis Childs. He is a university uh, professor of African American Studies or Africana Studies at UC San Diego. He's going to be talking about his book, Slaves of the State, Black Incarceration from the Chain Gang to the Penitentiary, in which he argues that some southern states exploited a clause in the 13th Amendment that allowed for slavery as punishment for a crime. That's a very kind way of saying that uh, the southern states were just using this exception clause um, to keep people in a literal state of chattel slavery uh, that uh, uh, just newly freed people were experiencing uh, at the time. This is uh, from November 10th of 2016. Balboa Park and its 1,200 acres sit in the heart of San Diego. Initially called City Park, it was decided the name should be changed after San Diego was selected to host the 1950 Panama, California Exposition. The name Balboa was chosen to honor the first European to spot the Pacific Ocean while on exploration in Panama. Today, it's home to numerous museums, performing arts venues, and the San Diego Zoo. It was here that we spoke with Dennis Childs about his book, Slaves of the State. was enshrined in the law. The black codes 
And even after the black codes were outlawed, the only thing that was outlawed when the, when the black codes were done away with was racially specific language. So before it would say, if you were a black person and you got caught stealing a hog, for instance, which was related to hunger and dispossession, we can put you on a chain gang. All they had to do to do the same thing was remove the word black or Negro from the law, and it would pass constitutional muster. So the expectation on the part of the population writ large was we now can be full kind of uh, participants in the U.S. nation state. We can lay claim to rights with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. But there was a quick realization that that advocation of rights did not equal an actual translation into the existence of black people. And racial apartheid is what occurred. And in my book, I write about a woman named Mintha Morrison from a place called Laronia, Georgia. She writes a letter to the president, Theodore Roosevelt, at the time, and says to him, Basically, I expected to be a free person after emancipation, and what my, myself, my husband Jackson, and my whole family have landed in is, is in a condition of slavery. And she says to him in a, in a basically a 10-point letter that is numbered and gives detail by detail of how her husband, through being charged with a petty offense and not being able to pay the fee, was taken, was threatened with the chain gang, and then a white person came and bought him out of the chain gang sentence by paying his fee, and he was basically auctioned off to this person, um, a Colonel Smith from the, he was a, a colonel uh, for the Confederacy, who ended up being a re real big player politically in the state of Georgia, bought him out. This person ran an, a 20,000-acre plantation that had people that were leased out or bought out of the, of the court system like Jackson Morrison. It had black women that were leased out to him as the runner, the runner of one of the prisons of Georgia. And it had people that were supposedly free laborers, sharecroppers. So on this very space, you had every example of the refabrication of black unfreedom. And what she says to President Roosevelt is, you need to do something about this situation. My, and she ended up working in the same plantation because the owner of it promised her if she worked like her husband that it would go towards the ending of his slavery sentence. And in actuality, none of the time that she worked was counted toward, toward a sentence. They extended it out. He ended up staying there and being whipped with the plantation whip and un, enduring a lot of the things that we associate with pre-1865 slavery. And what she says at the end of the letter is, this person, Colonel Smith, whips his uh, slaves unmercifully. Uh, black men and women are being submitted to slavery. This is not what we counted on for everything that we have done for this country. And there we have it, right? The treachery, um, the addiction to keeping uh, Afro-descendant people in a slave-like state. And that's why we have this new iteration of it today. This might have been hap this was not might this was happening in the south but now we see again that treachery uh the corruption um uh taking place now in the present day a new iteration right here in the north um in our very specifically California prisons let's just say we are going to continue with Dr. Childs.
think that that really encapsulates both the expectations and then the really horrifying reality that black people endured um, during that period in the early 20th century, but are still enduring today. And in terms of peonage, which is the example that Jackson Morrison went through, or criminal surety is another form where somebody could come to a court, pay your fine and literally buy you out, is that you not only would have an extension of your time, um, people would basically cook the books and you would never get out of that debt, and also you had the threat of being killed or imprisoned if you were to try to leave that situation. So it wasn't only the extension of the time, the temporal aspect of it, but there was also the real terrorism that black people endured as a result of it. That ended up in mass killings sometimes, um, rape as a, a de facto form of, of punishment by the master or by the company, because we know that companies like U.S. Steel took part in this neo-slavery um, uh, formations in places like Alabama and Tennessee. Um, so this was a large complex of not only labor, um, the, the acquisition of black labor as unfree labor, but also terrorism against black people, a, a refabrication of white supremacy, which is very important. Not only the fact that it was happening in the southern U.S., but this was all validated by the national government structure and by the very amendments to the U.S. Constitution that supposedly outlawed these practices. So the chain gang system um, most of, most, uh, mostly was a, a county-level consort of the state-level system, which was called convict leasing. Convict leasing was legal from the recon Reconstruction period, its early stages, all the way through around 1930s. Um, but the chain gang system was a county-level consort of that system. And what it meant was for, say, a misdemeanor, a petty offense, you could be put in a system where you would be uh, put in a what I call the rolling cage, um, and I write a whole chapter on Toni Morrison's novel Beloved, in which she has a scene where one of the main characters, Paul D, is put on a chain gang, and he's put into this kind of tomb-like structure, and she, in taking her artistic li license, actually, to show how this was like a structure of living death, actually puts the cage underground. Um, but in reality, the cages that that scene was uh, based on were, were movable and, and, and mobile. And the reason why they were movable and mobile was that these neo-slaves, as I call them in the book, or prison slaves, were at work building the entire southern infrastructure that had been really decimated with the Civil War, but also trying to move the South into the New South paradigm of an industrializing more in the northern image of an, of an industrial kind of formation. And so the railroads, the highways, turpentining, mining, all of these new industries were largely um, made up of workers, per se, that were actually prison slaves. And the chain gang system was mostly for people who, had convict, who were convicted of misdemeanors, sometimes who couldn't pay a fine, um, so literally what was criminalized was your poverty, landlessness, and dispossession. Um, but it was very much a canny operation. In other words, the people that ran the states and sometimes governors um, of states would actually be players in these institutions, whether it be the, the misdemeanor level of the county, county chain gang or, again, the felony level of the, the convict lease system. And the convict lease system was a system where 
the gut, if you were convicted of a crime, you could literally be leased out to private corporations as a result of that crime. So it, what was called the prison system originally in the, sub, the southern states was actually private enterprise taking over the job of controlling the black population. And even after that was outlawed, I have a whole chapter in the book on how a space uh, like Angola Prison Plantation, um, the state penitentiary of Louisiana, it started out as a slave plantation in the 19th century. Then, after the Civil War, it became a convict lease uh, plantation, 18,000 acres, bigger in area than the island of Ma the, the 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 area of Manhattan. Um, then, after it was a con after convict leasing was outlawed, the state basically became jealous of the profits of the person that owned that space. It it outlawed convict leasing and then turned it into the state penitentiary of Louisiana, which it is till this day. As you and I are here under this beautiful weather in San Diego, black men and others are in the same fields that Africans slaved in in the 19th century, picking various crops right as we speak. Um, so you have that real symbolic manifestation of what I call neo-slavery in that history of a space like that. One of the main things I want people to take away from the book is the degree to which slavery, um, and I'm talking about the pre-1865 variety, is not some sort of dinosaur age, uh, pre-modern or pre-capitalist system. That slavery, rather than being the exception, a kind of original sin that we've now gotten away from, is actually foundational to our current predicaments of police brutality and terrorism, of legal repression, of political disempowerment, of economic disempowerment, of educational, uh, lack of educational access. All of the things that people find so important right now are, again, grounded in the original um, uh, kind of problematics associated with slavery, which in my uh, work as both uh, you know, someone that writes about the subject matter and teaches about it, oftentimes I find that even though slavery and you could add like indigenous genocide, genocide being so foundational to U.S. history and U.S. present, so many of our most talented and brilliant youth and students have very little knowledge about that system. And if they do, they will believe in the mythos that slavery ended in 1865. And everything that I found in doing the research for the book, and everything, again, like the scholars I mentioned before, David Oshinsky, um, Alex Lichtenstein, Angela Davis, and imprisoned scholars like Asada Shakur, and Angela Davis, and Mumi Abu-Jamal, say and tell us in their work, in their intellectual bearing towards this issue, of there being 2.4 million people or around that number locked up in supposedly the most democratic society on the planet, everything that, that we learned about that history from 1865 to the present tells us this, that, that, that that narrative of, uh, of slavery abolition is actually a myth, a myth, a myth in large measure, that, that part of what we see is a refabrication rather than an ending. Um, that's not to say that all of the you know, the wonderful um, sacrifices and incredible sacrifices that Africans and others made to abolish slavery by the time 1865 weren't important. But it is to say that the, the myth of progress is something that we have to kind of really be critical about.
All right, the name of the book again is Slaves of the State, Black Incarceration from the Chain Gang to the Penitentiary. And then, of course, there are a bunch of footnotes, and one of them um, is about an article called Inhuman Punishment, the Undead Book of Chattel Carcerality. And that's a word I've never heard before. Um, This is how it begins. Slavery and freedom, they is mostly the same. No difference hardly except in the name. Georgia Chain Gang song. This is the early 1900s. The administrators have stripped us all but the bare necessities and are now taking those also. The beating and rapes don't help matters either. The male guards treat us as if we were chattel. Elizabeth B. Revolutionary Prisoners Speak, 1999. This book represents my attempt at answering a call I first heard many years ago as a graduate student living in Oakland, California. One emitting me emitting from an article by Angela Davis entitled Racialized Punishment and Prison Abolition. The radical counter-historical directive I received from this piece is crystallized most succinctly at a moment in which Davis distinguishes her neo-abolitionist encounter with the U.S. carceral state from that of Michel Foucault on the basis of the culturally and legally crafted soulless character of the captive Negro. All right, and excuse me, I didn't make clear that this is the introduction to the book, Slaves of the State, Black Incarceration from the Chain Gang to the Penitentiary. All right, if, as Foucault suggest, suggests, the locus of the new European mode of punishment shifted from the body to the soul, black slaves in the U.S. were largely perceived as lacking a soul that might be shaped and transformed by punishment. Within the institution of slavery, itself a form of incarceration, racialized forms of punishment developed alongside the emergence of the prison system, within and as a negative affirmation of the, quote, free world. As white men acquired the privilege to be punished in ways that acknowledged their equality and the racialized universality of liberty, the punishment of black slaves was corporal, concrete, and particular. Within the institution of slavery, itself a form of incarceration. I had read my Foucault before entering, encountering this hugely significant yet largely unengaged black radical epistemic phrase. Before reading Soledad Brother, before reading Asada Shakur's autobiography, before I finally recognized that Toni Morrison's beloved is not solely concerned with pre-1865 formations of chattel slavery, before my initial conversation with Robert Hillary King of the Angola Three following his hard-won release from nearly 30 years of solitary confinement, before hearing the spectral neo-slave soundings of Odea Matthews and Robert Pete Williams, before being summoned to a national white supremacist tourist site situated at the threshold of a fully operational 18,000-acre slave plantation by one of its historically anonymous and unceremoniously buried black captives. While Foucault barely makes mention of slavery in his compelling history of the modern prison, 
the writings, soundings, and survival practices of Davis and countless other black prisoners and former prisoners define chattel slavery as a primordial and tenaciously undead carceral regime of Euro-American modernity. As the legal, political, architectural, and cultural linchpin of racial, racial capitalist misogynist imprisonment in the United States, as it has morphed from the slave ship holds and barracoons of the Middle Passage, to the portable boxcar cages of early Jim Crow apartheid, to the coffin-simulating boxcar cells of today's prison industrial complex, PIC. Indeed, when read as one overarching, cross-fertilizing, and temporally unfixed network of racial and spatial terror, the U.S. system of mass imprisonment represents a centuries-old regime of chattelized prison industrial genocide that began well before the term PIC was ever uttered. A liberal white supremacist misogynist shitstem, as Peter Tosh might have dubbed it, that has submitted an as yet uncalculated nor completed number of black people and other racially and criminally stigmatized groups to collectivized natal alienation, excremental internment, unproductive forced labor, serialized corporal rupture, legally unredressable sexual violence, coerced performance, and manifold forms of death, ranging from the social to the civil to the biological. Notwithstanding, the tendency within U.S. juridical, wow, legislative and penal law to disavow the chattel origins of modern incarceration, there have been key moments in which post-bellum liberal legal discourse has offered bold-faced articulation of the state's enslaving and murderous bearing towards criminally and racially stigmatized bodies. In Ruffin v. Commonwealth, 1871, Justice J. Christian supplies just this sort of open, dec open declaration of the law's re-chattelizing functionality vis-a-vis -vis former slaves in his ostensibly colorblind construction of the civilly dead non-position of the criminally branded felon. Quote, he has, as a consequence of his crime, not only forfeited his liberty, but all his personal rights except those which the law and its humanity accords to him. He is, for the time being, the slave of the state. He is civiliter mortis, civilly dead, and his estate, if he has any, is administered like that of a dead man, unquote. What would the laws in incantatory proclamation of penal enslavement in respect to all criminally branded subjects mean for those beings who had been defined as metaphysically incorrigible, legally fungible, and socially disposable for generations before 1871, as suggested in Davis's discussion of the racialized dimensions of chattel imprisonment, the abject status of civil death would be taken to its zero degree as postbellum white supremacist law set its sights on those putatively soulless subjects whose slavery and social death rested at the very foundation of free white social, civil, and cultural life in the United States since its inception as a genocidal colony of the British Empire. 
far from representing a juridical anomaly or an anachronistic throwback to the feudal origins of Euro-American common law, Ruffin constituted an all-too-accurate racial gothic omen of the terroristic trajectories of modern imprisonment as it has been waged against former slaves and putatively, quote, free, unquote, black people from convict leasing to chain gangs, to peonage camps, to the prison plantation, to the penitentiary. In attempting to offer an aperture of neochromatic address for the living dead of the U.S. neo-slavery, however, this book considers what amounts to a collectively issued refutation of the organizing fascist logic within J. Christian's matter-of-fact pronouncement of the civilly dead status of the prison slave. That is, what the spectral voices testimonies, and survival practices of black prisoners make clear is that racialized prison slavery has had little to do with the alleged criminal acts of individual black people and everything to do with the socially constructed crime of being born black or indigenous or brown or poor in apartheid, quote, America. All right, if you are just joining us, this is KPOO San Francisco 89.5 Prison Focus Radio. I'm your host, Nube Brown, and we have been listening to Dr. Dennis Childs speak on his book, Slaves of the State, Black Incarceration from the Chain Gang to the Penitentiary, and me reading his uh, introduction. And we are now going to hear uh, Winter in America by Gil Scott Heron. From the towns of the nation, we'd like to do a song for you about the larger picture. There's only one season lately. There used to be an agreement between the seasons that they would all come and stay for three months and then go to wherever seasons go when they're not where we are. Lately, there has been no spring, no summer, and no fall. Politically and philosophically and psychologically, there has only been the season of ice. It is a season of frozen dreams and frozen nightmares, a scene of frozen progress and frozen ideas, frozen aspirations and inspirations. They call the season winter. We call the song Winter in America. Like the forest, they buried beneath the highway. I 
into history with the Black Journal interview with Angela Davis in 1972. This is the first national television interview for Angela Davis since she was acquitted of kidnapping, murder, and conspiracy in connection with the Marin County Courthouse shootout that took place two years ago. This will be a first-hand account from Angela of the events of the last 22 months 
and her plans for the future. Sister Davis, let me welcome you to Black Journal. And let me speak for literally millions of people who are very pleased and happy with your safety. Tell me, the events that I guess you're now reading in the newspapers, do they cooperate uh, with the actual accounting that, of the events that you know best? Well, there's been a great deal of distortion in the vast majority of newspaper accounts, uh, television accounts, press in general. And uh, I think that the kind of publicity that the establishment press is willing to give me is simply based on the fact that they think that I'm good copy. In fact, that's uh, one of the reasons why I didn't rush to uh, answer all of the requests that have come in for TV interviews and radio interviews and newspaper interviews. I felt that, uh, however, that appearing on Black Journal was something that was extremely important because I know uh, that uh, you are interested in serving the needs and interests of black people. And therefore, I decided to do this one because I feel that this is a... Um, a chance for me to express my gratitude and appreciation to all of my sisters and brothers who've worked so hard and so long in the struggle to free me. Angela, in terms of the sisters and brothers who have worked for your freedom, could you put in context how the activities of those people actually ended up in your being vindicated of those charges? Well, there have been all kinds of activities over the last 22 months. But perhaps I can uh, give one very concrete example of the way in which the involvement of large masses of people, and particularly black people, uh, had a direct impact on the case itself. Uh, a couple of months ago, there was a decision from the California Supreme Court abolishing the death penalty. That meant at that time that we were able to make a motion for bail. There were felony defendants all over the state of California who also made motions for bail. But as it turned out, I was the only one who was immediately released. And I suppose you know that afterwards the Supreme Court modified its original decision and stated that uh, um, cases that had been capital offenses that were capital offenses before the abolition of the death penalty would continue to remain unbailable. But right after the uh, decision came down, letters and telegrams and telephone calls and petitions and all kinds of things came in from all over the country and all over the world. And in fact, uh, during the bail, the presentation of the bail motion itself, the judge acknowledged the fact that he was receiving so many telegrams and letters that he didn't have time to read them. And I know that uh, that had an impact on the decision. What it meant was that the, uh, the, the judge could uh, release me on bail knowing that there existed a climate of public opinion which uh, would agree with that and he wouldn't feel isolated. So I think that that had a very important impact. And that had an important impact on the outcome of the trial. Because how would the jurors have felt if they saw me coming in from a holding cell underneath the courtroom, uh, flanked by guards and matrons? Uh, they would tend to look at me as already guilty, as already convicted. Now, that's what really happens to most black people oh, yeah. when they come in a courtroom. They're chained. Uh, I've seen pictures of the, uh, some of the Soldat brothers as they were chained and led into the courtroom. Angela, um, how do you feel inside now? I mean, 
about being free, do you have a mixed feeling about being a little bitter and a little sweet? Are you most sweet? I mean, how, how, how are you accepting this one, the, this ordeal that you've been put through, and secondly, now your, your new freedom? Well, certainly uh, the months I spent in jail, the majority of which was spent in solitary confinement, uh, weren't a very happy experience at all. But I wouldn't really say that I feel bitter about my own personal ordeal, because I know that uh, so many of my sisters and brothers are right now suffering under conditions that are far worse than those that I had to put up while I was in prison. Uh, my overall feeling about uh, the acquittal is that the victory around my case means that there can be more victories. And all of the people, all of the sisters and brothers who came together in an organized fashion in order to demand my freedom can see now that it's possible to free more political prisoners and to do something about the oppression which has uh, enslaved black people in this country for so long. Well, Angela, when you say political prisoner, what do you mean? Well, there are a number of ways in which I would describe what a political prisoner is. Of course, we all recognize that the United States does not recognize the existence of political prisoners. And in fact, uh, in general, when you talk about a person who is arrested um, for political reasons, you're talking about the use of criminal charges in order to uh, uh, stifle leadership, in order to isolate uh, leaders and, and activists from the community. There is that kind of political prisoner. We know about Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins and Huey Newton and Leotis Johnson, and I could go on and on and on. The list is endless, the Soledad brothers. Uh, we know that uh, they were uh, arrested on criminal charges as an excuse for removing them from the community, removing them from their revolutionary uh, work and activity among the people. But over the last few years, there has come into being another kind of political prisoner. And I'm talking about all of the sisters and brothers who are victims of the system who are easy targets of the police, who get railroaded through the courts into prison, often for no reason at all, uh, who are there only because they're black. And I think uh, a brother during the Attica Rebellion sort of uh, expressed this whole thing when uh, he was asked by a reporter uh, what he was charged with. And he said he was charged with being black. That's why he was there. And coupled with, coupled with um, the oppression that uh, leads black people and brown people, people of color, into the jails and prisons of this country, has been a new kind of political awareness that has spread all over the jails and prisons throughout the country. Uh, 
and George Jackson and Fleeta Drumgo and John Cluche and Rochelle McGee. I could go on and on and on to name the uh, sisters and brothers who have achieved a political awareness and a political political commitment behind the walls. But you see, once they do this, then they are subjected to all of the terror that the prison system has to offer. And so they end up spending years and years and years in prison under the worst of circumstances. Angela, tell me how I have been frequently asked this. We've received letters, fans of Angela Davis, and some brothers and sisters don't understand your concept of communism. They don't understand, they cannot, let's say, reconcile blackness and communism. What is your philosophy in that respect? Well, first of all, I think that black people, particularly black youth and brown youth, are beginning to see through the lies and distortions of the government and are beginning to uh, see that much of what has been said about communism in this country is simply not true. The reason I am a communist is because I feel that only through a total revolution which is going to overthrow the capitalist control of the economy, which will seize the wealth from all of the giant corporations that exploit and control the lives of all working people, but particularly black people. And see, I feel that the reason why racism is so blatant and has, and has uh, been a part of the history of black people from the time we were first kidnapped from the shores of Africa is because it has helped those capitalists uh, gain more and more profit. And if you look at any factory, any plant, who does the worst jobs? Who gets, pays, who gets paid uh, uh, the uh, smallest salaries? It's black people. So racism serves as a, as a buttress, as an, a justification for super exploitation. And I feel that if we're going to talk about to the total liberation of black people, we first have to liberate ourselves from the material conditions of our oppression. And the material conditions of our oppression are no jobs, are bad jobs, unemployment, bad housing, bad medical care, and all of the kinds of things that will be eradicated under socialism. I think, however, that uh, um, there's been uh, a lot of confusion, even in the movement, even among uh, sisters and brothers who were fighting for liberation about what communism is all about. People have talked about uh, uh, black people being used by communists. And I think that that really underestimates our ability as black people to be leaders. And not only to lead ourselves, but to lead white people also. And as a, as a communist in this country, um, I see that the greatest revolutionary potential exists among black and brown people. And you let me ask the classic question. And so just, just one okay. more thing, and I'd like to make the point that when I talk about a, a communist revolution, I'm talking about a revolution which encompasses the majority, the vast majority of people in this country who are working people, but a revolution which is led by people of color, working people of color. Would you see this as, as a means of, one, eradicating racism as well as classism? The two 
are inextricably combined. It, um, as I said before, racism, in terms of its uh, uh, material base, means super-exploitation. Economically, it means that, that, that uh, black people get the worst uh, of the entire lot, economically. It also means that the capitalist, the boss, is able to divide um, black workers from white workers. Why? Because he tells, he tells the white worker that his problem is not those who control his lives, those who take his labor and turn it into profit for themselves, but his problem is, is uh, uh, the black man who's trying to get his job. And so racism is operated as a divisive force to prevent the emergence of a, of, of a real uh, revolution in this country. Well, the kind of thing that, you, that you're trying to do, Angela, do you see that as being in any way in conflict with black nationalism? Well, it depends on what you mean by black nationalism. Um, of course, I would never equate the oppression of black people in this country with the um, exploitation of white people. I think that uh, there is an essential difference. And there is a national aspect of our struggle as black people. And we have to maintain that uh, uh, cohesiveness and that unity among ourselves in order to be effective in, in a broader revolution. Uh, I would say also that for white people, for white workers, the most important thing they have to do now is combat racism. So that uh, racism and the fight against racism becomes the key to a a, a broad revolution embracing all people in this country, all working people. Angela, when you say revolution, when you say overthrow of the government, number one, what do you mean by revolution? Do you mean an armed confrontation? Do you mean a change in the values of the system? Uh, when you say overthrow the government, again, are you speaking in terms of a, a violent confrontation? Are you speaking in terms of political process? What is it that you have in mind? When you... Well, I mean, that depends really on those who wield the power. Uh, if it were possible to have a peaceful revolution, and when I say revolution, I'm talking about a complete and total change in the entire fabric of the society, uh, a change in the distribution of wealth. We have to seize all of the wealth from the General Motors and from the Fords and from all of the giant corporations that control the destiny of this country today. But we also have to revamp uh, the uh, educational system. We have to revamp all the political institutions. Now, if uh, those who are in power now would simply accept the demands of the revolution, then uh, there would be no necessity for violence. Uh, if, if there is uh, violence in the process of waging a revolution, that will be determined by the um, ruling class. That will be determined by those who hold the power. Now see, uh, let me just give you a, a small sort of a microcosmic example of what I mean. Um, say a group of people get together and go out and, and uh, demonstrate in order to uh, uh, dramatize their demands around a particular issue. Um, yeah, that's fine if 
they are able to do this in the way in which they want to. But what happens uh, in many cases, you have police forces unleashed on them because they are peacefully demonstrated. And my position is that we do not uh, uh, stand there and allow ourselves to be shot down and beaten. We have the right, we have the human right to defend ourselves and to defend our principles and defend what we want to do. And so I would say that uh, in the event of violence in a revolution, you always have to see that in the context of defending gains of the people. We have a right to defend those gains. Angela, now many people, black nationalist organizations, middle-of-the-road organizations, black people, are talking about using the political process. Some blacks in the community have uh, now gotten behind McGovern, some behind Humphrey, uh, some behind Shirley Chisholm. Do you see politics as a viable force in our struggle? Do you plan to become involved in the political process of getting people elected to effect change? You mean the electoral process? Yes. Because there are many different levels of political struggle. Well, I think that the electoral uh, process is something that should be utilized it's not something that should be seen as the solution because I don't think that uh, uh, simply by changing the faces and changing the figures in the government, there's going to be any kind of fundamental change. When we talk about a revolution, we're talking about a fundamental change in the system, a complete and total overthrowing and transformation of the system. Um, I feel that the electoral process is significant in the sense that it serves as it serves to measure the level of consciousness which uh, black people and people of color and white people as well have achieved. Take someone like Ron Dillums. The fact that Ron Dillums was elected uh, to Congress said something about the collective mood of the people in his area. And precisely because it said something about their collective mood, he cannot forget that he has a responsibility to make known the, the, the needs and the interests and, and, and uh, whatever his uh, contingency uh, uh, feels are the important issues of the day. Angela, to draw an analogy in another direction, the many people are saying that, many people, some institutions, particularly white press, that the fact that you've been vindicated of the charges proves that the system of justice will work for black people. The fact that you were found innocent by an all-white jury in only 13 hours of deliberation and only 13 weeks of a trial proves that the system can work. You know, I suppose they must feel that we are totally unsophisticated. Uh, at first, I really found it incredible that they could do this again. They did it after the acquittal of the, the New York uh, 21. They did it after Bobby and Erica, and now they're doing it again. But, see, it seems to me that the very fact that they're so quick to jump up and say, here's another acquittal, it now demonstrates conclusively that there's nothing wrong with the American system of justice. If they weren't aware of all of the uh, problems in, in the judicial system, of the way in which it has been historically used and continues to be used as a weapon of oppression against black people, they wouldn't be so defensive about the whole thing. 
Uh, how can you say that uh, this demonstrates that, the, that there is, is uh, justice in the American courts when uh, we know that the jails and prisons across the country are filled to the brim with black and brown people? We know uh, that uh, on death row right now, the vast majority of the uh, prisoners who are going to be executed are people of color. Um, we know that when a black person is picked up from the community and brought to jail, he's going to have to depend on a public defender because more than likely he won't be able to hire a good lawyer. And this public defender, what is he going to do? He's going to tell him to cop a plea, even though he knows in many cases that his client is, uh, is just as innocent as he is. Um, that uh, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And then just 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 one more thing, I am uh, convinced that if there had not been the kind of struggle that occurred around my case, that uh, I probably wouldn't be out here now. In other words, if you had not been Angela Davis. Well, not not Angela Davis. But well, I mean the, the well-known. The well, it's it's a see this whole victory. It's not my victory. It's our victory. It's a victory of all those who struggled around me, not because I happen to be a special kind of a person, but because I uh, am also, like all of our sisters and brothers in the jails and prisons, a victim of the government's repression. And so what I'm going to try to do now is to build the very same kind of movement that was built around me and the kind of movement that, that uh, uh, liberated me from prison in order to free more of our brothers and sisters because that's, that's the real significance of this victory. All right. Again, this is Angela Davis who is making her first national television appearance uh, with Tony Brown, who is she's given this exclusive interview, which is following her recent acquittal of charges of kidnapping, murder, and conspiracy after the San Rafael courtroom shootout in Marin County. Uh, you can find, he goes on to ask her a few uh, more personal questions about her uh, future plans. And uh, you, there's, so it's about three more minutes and you can find this interview in its entirety on YouTube and it's called Black Journal Interview with Angela Davis, 1972. As we continue with um, Black History Month and with education, uh, most notably, uh, our HBC, uh, HBCUs that are um, are being that have bomb threats. Um, Oakland schools um, are are being threatened with closure. Uh, the school to prison pipeline is real and in effect, and we are going to keep our finger on the pulse regarding it, regarding this genocidal practice. All right, that is our show. Get ready for work week with Steve Seltzer. Truth. 
Yeah. <laughs>